Shalom. Welcome to Rivkus, a CJN podcast featuring conversations with Jews of color discussing all things Jewish. I am so pleased today. There's this British expression called chuffed. And I am so chuffed today to have Hen Mazig here with me. He is an Israeli writer, a columnist for the Jewish Journal, a speaker, a prolific writer, has been named on all those lists, you know, like the top 50 online pro-Israel influencers, top 50 LGBTQ plus influencers, just an amazing man. His background is Mizrahi. He does studies in that. He actually holds a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern and Islam studies from from university. He is, I don't think I can say enough, his biography is incredible. Everything from his writing to his service in the IDF, an award winner, an advocate. He is the full package. And I am so pleased to have him and go beyond my usual stalking of him on Twitter and actually have a conversation. So this is amazing. Welcome. Thank you, Rivka. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you and um, joining this uh, really important podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Well, you know, it's it, we need to hear more voices. We need to hear our voices. And, yeah. you know, and I'm so pleased that we do have this platform to, to do this. So one of the things I want, there's so much I want to ask you. Um, I, I, I'm almost overwhelmed that there is because there's so much I want to ask you. <laughs> So, so let's start off with just because you wrote an article about Jews of color. And um, so why don't we start there? Because you wrote an article for the Jewish Journal, and it was entitled, What is a Jew of Color? So please let me know what was the, what was the push that, that, um, that, led you to write this article. And if you want to elaborate more on it, especially around the sometimes triggering statement, white Jews. So if you can just elaborate for me, that'd be great. Yes, of course. Um, so I, I didn't coin the term Jews of color. It's, uh, it's been used for, for a few years. It was actually um, uh, coined by uh, um, a black Jewish woman, uh, a writer that I'm just blanking on her oh. name right now. Shh. Uh, do you know I what think, I'm talking about? I think I do. And I have completely, is her name Shauna? Oh, yes yes yes, yes. 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 You're exactly. right. I'd forgotten that. Thank you. Yeah. So she wrote, um, she wrote an amazing article. It, it'll come to me um, about how important it is to, um, for Jews of color to, um, to, to come together and how, and, and, you know, for her, uh, when she was writing about the um, including Jews of color in this umbrella, she spoke about, um, of course, Black Jews, but also including Asian Jews and including um, Native American Jews and including Mizrahi Jews and Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and I think it's it, it it was so important that this article was written, and since then it gave a whole language and um, to people that and a you know tool for people that would otherwise not have it. And I think that you you are in one side of racism and you know which side you are on and people know which side they're on and, and if they're benefiting from 
um, from being on one side or the other, if they have experience. And, and when, the more I read about Jews of color, the more I realized that which side of, of, the, of, the, of this conversation I'm at. And those stories about um, that were very, that resonated with me as someone that lived in America for a few years and was stopped by um, police and driving in the street. And I was, and I, I mean, I, I thought this was something that only black folks face in terms of racism from police wow. uh, in this way. And for me, it was, wait, but I'm also, I mean, one policeman and uh, I wrote about that as well. Uh, it wasn't in, I'm writing about that in my, um, in my next book, my first book that is coming up next year um, that I just finished uh, that is called Mizrahi Jews, Jews of Color. Um, and in this book, I really explored it. And I'm saying that one time I had an experience with a police officer that he looked at my passport and he said, oh, you're Israeli. Well, that's better. I thought you were one of those Al-Qaeda people. Um, and that was just shocking for me. Um, but it was also, you know, that all those experiences all of a sudden made sense for me when I read more about what Jews of color mean. And this, um, and the reason that I wrote my book in Hebrew, in, in English and not in Hebrew, I mean, is because... Um, it's very unique conversation to North America, I feel, uh, in the sense that even here in the UK, and I live in the UK, it's not just not the same. Um, although there's racism, of course, there's racism here, there's racism everywhere in the West, uh, mm -hmm. in Europe, and, 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 in, and in North America. But the experience is different. I think that in, uh, that in America, it's, um, you know, the history in, in North America, America and Canada, um, the history is so um, um, loaded and there's so much to mm -hmm. to to um to unpack and i do understand why a lot of jews take issue with the idea of of uh of being called white and i do understand that conversation that is going on right now within the jewish community on the fact that in the holocaust jews were killed because they weren't aryan and they uh, uh and that's why they were targeted uh and there was this a fake idea of race um, but it's almost as if people are saying, some people I'm reading online and then reading some voices are saying that um, Jews are a race and we're not a race. We're, you know, we're coming in all Thank those you. colors and we're coming in all those identities. And there's, there's a difference between celebrating diversity that I see a lot of people are doing, um, and which is fine, but celebrating diversity doesn't really address racism within our community and outside our community. And our community as Jews is not immune to racism. We are, of course, we we are the um, subjected to um, to to bigotry, just like every other marginalized community. But it doesn't have to be, you know, based on your on your uh, on your race. And it's not even, you know, and there's there's so much to discuss here. You know, we can discuss colorism. We can discuss color, we can discuss racism. Um, but it's also important to understand that Jews are not a race. And that was the biggest lie that the the Nazis killed six million exactly. Jews because of because they said that we are a race exactly. so uh, so that's why the the understanding that there are black Jews that experience both anti-semitism and racism and there is Jews of color um, that experience both racism in a different way than black Jews that me as a Mizrahi Jewish person would experience racism in a different way um, but I can recognize that and I think most people you know we live in a world that you should know in which side of the of of this uh, of the conversation about racism you are, um, and and it's and and I understand that you know you're just like being Jew is not being non-Jew, uh, and just like being a Jewish woman is just not being a Jewish man, and just like being an LGBTQ Jew means that you're just not straight Jew. Uh, you can be a Jew of color. That it's just I believe that you can always add identities, um, yes. and it doesn't go to say anything about anyone else, but it's just going to understand that. Um, 
that racism is real and that we have suffered from it in America and wherever we have been. Um, and, uh, and some of us have benefited from it, from, from being, you know, from passing into the dominated majority of society. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. I think I, I've been saying till, you know, I've almost given up saying it when people say, you know, we're a race, Jews are a race. And I said, no, in fact, I'm, I'll never forget. Somebody said to me, I said, Jews are a race. I said, that's pretty cool. I guess my children are like tri-racial because they're <laughs> black, white, and Jewish. So they're actually tri-racial. And I thought, even writing it, it sounded stupid, but you know, but I was like, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with saying Jews are not a race. We, we, it's not racism, it's anti-Semitism and, and owning it and owning that there is some privilege that comes with color of skin. And, you know, and I've tried saying to them, well, if you lived in the deep South, back in the times of slavery or Jim Crow, if you walked up to a particular water fountain that said whites only, could you drink from it? And they kind of go, well, yeah. I said, I never could. I can't shed this, you know, because then they'll mm. say, well, at different times in history, we were considered white. And they said that you were even considered white. These that should tell you something right there. I've never been considered white, you know? And from what I understand in the United States, Jews, there wasn't a point in history that Jews weren't actually considered white, legally, legally, right? But we forget all that. We get caught up in, in, in things that are, like you said, are actually inaccurate. But um, something else you said just led me, you know, because as I was um, reading and as I was, introducing you, I was thinking to myself, he has multiple identities. And as, as do all of us, but you know, to see it all on paper, you have multiple identities. <laughs> and one of them you touched on was you are a part of the LGBTQ plus community. And I wanted to know, knowing what I know about Israel, especially Israel in a certain time, <laughs> knowing what mm. I know about serving in the army, whether it's in Canada and US and certain, um, certain stigma and homophobia that comes with it, in particular in the United States. How was your journey? How was your journey to, um, to coming out and being your whole authentic self, especially in the IDF? It's, it's amazing that you're asking this question because this is a big part of my book was around how I came out of the closet as a gay person in the army when I was serving the army and then drawing the parallels to coming out as a person of color, as a Jewish person, as Mizrahi Jew um, and really reclaiming who I am and being proud of it and understanding that um, the more I, I am proud of who I am and the more I am being authentic, um, the better, not only is, not, not only it's easier for me to live as, as who I am, but it's also, it, it resonates and people see that and people react to it. And I think, um, I, I came out of the closet when I was um, 18, 19 years old in the army. And mm -hmm. I was a young, young soldier and um, coming from a, you know, a house of uh, Iraqi mother and Tunisian father that had, um, it came from a culture that I don't want to say backward in general, but backward in terms of the acceptance of LGBTQ people. Um, I and I thought, yeah, and I thought that it might be, I mean, I, I knew that it's going to be um, difficult for, for them to, to accept it. Um, 
And it was amazing that only in the army, I felt that I was accepted enough. Um, perhaps it's because everyone wear uniform and there's, um, there's this feeling that everyone are, although not the same, but everyone are just kind of like accepted. And, um, and also the IDF is known for being accepting for, uh, to LGBTQ folks, um, specifically for um, gay soldiers, but also trans soldiers now are being more accepted, which is great to see. Um, but so, so I actually came out to my commander in the army and that was the first person that I ever told him that, uh, that I was gay. And he actually gave me a day off to go um, back to Tel Aviv because of it. And um, wow. it was really, yeah, he really was the first experience. one. Yeah. Walk me through it because, because I'm, because <laughs> what people can't see is they can't see your smile as you're saying that. So it sounds also like, what was it in that moment? Why in that moment? Why? And why him? Uh, there's a really cute story there, um, but that's why I'm smiling. Uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I was, uh, I was the soldier, and um, I was. I, later on, I I became an officer. But when when you start, you start as a soldier, just as a normal soldier. And I served in the West Bank um, in the humanitarian unit of the IDF, working with Palestinians on building infrastructure um, and humanitarian projects. And my commander then, his name was Adam, and Adam was. Um, really like a, a father figure for me in many ways. And he believed in me and I was, uh, was very heavy back then. I was probably twice my, uh, my weight now. Um, and uh, yeah, and Adam always said that I'm going to go to, that he believes that I'm going to go to officer training school. And I said, Adam, I'm not gonna do it. Officer training school is a whole year, year that you are going through, you know, a really difficult, um, uh, trainings and you have to run and I said I can barely walk you want me to run I'm walking and I have to sit down and <laughs> getting tired Sorry. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah that, that's what it was and uh, um, and I had a friend back then at home uh, his name was Elon and Elon was really the really accepted me as I am um, I was I was in the closet back then but I was still um, a fan of Britney Spears and Beyonce and uh, really dancing to their moves and, and being very who I so, am. And who I hold like. on. So, so you're kind of, you're peeking. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't quite open the door. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly it. Maybe one, like the hand was out, you know, just <laughs> dancing with one hand in the air. Um, uh, yeah. And then, and, and Elon was really, but he was really great. He was, he was straight back then. And he was, and he was uh, this macho guy that was really the straightest guy you'll meet. He was in the in combat unit and he just really accepted me in every way other than this one secret that he didn't know I was gay um and then I remember that I came back home because you get to go back home every weekend in the Israeli army it's not like the American or, or other, I know other armies when they send soldiers they're sending them thousands of miles away to Afghanistan or wherever it is or to Iraq or to fight for for oil or democracy or whatever they need to fight for. Um, <laughs> like the way you, I love the way you put oil before democracy, but carry on. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, I don't I know. Have no, I have no today. complaints. I have no complaints about how you said it, but please carry on. <laughs> whatever you want to believe in, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but no, but the Israeli army, when you go to the army, you actually just drive two hours away to your, to our border and you drive after that 
back home in the weekend. Um, so I went out to see Elon and Elon told me that he's ha- he has the secret that he hasn't told anyone and he wants to share with me. And I said, okay, tell me. And he said, well, uh, listen, I thought about it and I think I'm gay. And I said, what? No way, wow. you're the straightest guy I know. How can you be gay? Wow. Um, <laughs> and then he says, yes, I am. And he's taking out his phone and he's showing me this app called Grinder, where you meet other guys <laughs> on. And I'm getting upset. Um, I didn't want to see that. I don't know why, but I was upset. I mean, it, probably something internally. And I went back home and I couldn't sleep that night. I went back to the army the following day. And I remember Adam being there and he says, what's wrong? Something is happening. And I said, yeah. My best friend came out of the closet. It was very hard. And I said, why is it hard? And I said, I don't know. It's just upsetting. Um, and he said, um, well, I think there's something about it that really upsets you. And I said, yeah, it's just because, you know, it's hard for him to be gay now. And he said, no, no, I mean, there's something else. I said, what? And he said, well, it's because you're gay too, right? Wow. (laughs) So so not helping me out, pulling me out of the closet, basically. Literally, that hand that was hanging out, (laughs) he grabbed it and yanked you by it. That was exactly it, yeah. Um, And I think it was like a moment that, that for me, it felt like lasted forever. And he said, um, but that's, you know, you're, that's okay. And you, know, you can tell me that. And I said, yeah, I think I'm gay. And said, wow, that's amazing. Um, that's great. But there's another thing. I said, what other thing? I just came out of the closet for the first time. Can you give me a moment here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like a typical Israeli commander um, already wants to get to the next part. <laughs> and, um, and he says, do you need a hug? And I'm saying, no, I don't need a hug. Leave me alone. <laughs> he, says, he says, yeah, we had a really good relationship. And he said, okay, but the other part is that you have a crush on Ilan. That's what it is. Oh. And he was right because I had a crush on Ilan, not even realizing it. Um, wow. So then that's why he gave me the day off. And he said, go back home, confess your love and come back to the army the following day and tell me that you have a boyfriend. So I went back home and I got cute and went to see Elan and I told him um, that what he did was very brave and I wanted him to know that I think I'm gay too. And he said, "Why? Well, no way, you're the straightest guy I know. You can't be gay. <laughs> Same thing that I said to him. Um, and then he's like starting to show me pictures of guys that he's going on dates with and I'm getting like, upset again. Yeah. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, I just want to ask to try and go on a date maybe. And then it really broke my heart by saying that um, he can't date me because now that I'm gay, there's um, leagues and he can date people that are fit and good looking like him. And I can date people that are fat like me. Actually, Excuse me? <laughs> I know Rivka, it was really Come on. Like so- heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had been there. I would have said, are you bleeping kidding me, dude? <laughs> You're brand new. What do you know who you like and who you don't like? <laughs> exactly. You're, you're fresh off the boat and you're, and you're telling me all this stuff. Cardi's like, you know, categorizing. Exactly. I know. So I, I got back to the car, to my car, and I was my mom's car back then. I was, you know, in tears, driving home, listening to Adele. Um, and then I went to the, tell. I'm sorry. Went, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not even gonna say anything else. Continue. <laughs> you don't need to know. Yeah. Um, 
No, and then I saw Adam again, and he and I remember him saying to himself something like, "Oh shit," or something like that. Yeah. Um, and he said, and he said, "What happened?" And I said, "You ruined my life." And he said, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, came out of the closet, so I won't be able to go to officer training school as you wanted, because now people know I'm gay, and I also lost the love of my life." And Adam said, "Listen, Elon is not the love of your life because the love of your life will never treat you this way, and that you will know that they are when they're not treating you this way." And you are going to be an officer, and I'm going to make sure of it. And we started working out together and training every night. And I lost like I don't know, like 20 kilos in a matter of like six months. Um, and I went to officer training school, and I passed, and I really and I finished first in my battalion back then. And wow. um, and Elon reached out to me just a few years ago, actually, after years of not hearing from him, and he said, "Oh, I saw some pictures of you on Instagram." It look, looks like you're uh, you're fit now and you're working out. And, and what'd you said, say? Yes, what'd you I say? <laughs> I said yes, I am. Why? And he said, well, maybe we can go out for a drink if you're um, if you're in Israel. So I sent him a picture of me and my boyfriend, my yes! my current boyfriend. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I'm playing in the big league now. And I just yes! him. <laughs> um, yeah. So no no happy ending, but. But, no, no. You know, I feel good about myself. That there is, an is happy a happy ending. ending. It is absolutely yes. like that's one of those where you give you. I, you know, I want to do those three snaps. You know, like <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that's what I was hoping you said. It's like you know what, <laughs> bye, <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs> Yes. 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 It's like it. it's like bye, bye. I have always been beautiful. <laughs> you just didn't mm. see it. That's mm-hmm. all. Exactly. That's, all. That's exactly. So it actually, right. is the perfect ending. And what about your commander? Um, we've we've been in touch for a while. Then we lost contact. Life is stronger than you know than what you want. But um, um, but he was really an amazing guy, and it really clearly influenced me a lot. Clearly, like he's he was there at a pinnacle moment in your life. Really, he guided mm-hmm. you through a pinnacle moment in your life. So Absolutely. that is an amazing man and definitely doesn't fit the stereotype in my head of an IDF commander. The stereotypes I hear from my equal other who is also Israeli and yeah. to hear him talk about his commanders or whatever, it's like, oh, <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun at all, at all, at all. Or I say, oh, that commander sounds like how I'd be. <laughs> stand up sit down then it <laughs> so to hear that i had some of those as well yeah <laughs> yeah there were i had a few commanders in my service and yeah adam was really the best one he sounds amazing so kudos to yeah. adam what a guy yeah so yeah. speak so you mentioned that you were a humanitarian idf soldier and right. um i didn't know there is something like that it was because it's used as kind of a like part of the title as opposed to you were a humanitarian guy you know what i'm saying so there there is a humanitarian officer that's the title yeah there's a humanitarian unit in the israeli army um, oh. since we yeah since we are um since israel still um controls the west bank and the soldiers mm-hmm. are still there um there's a lot of civil aspect to take care of. So there's the COGAT unit, the coordinator of government activities in the territories. And it's basically a big unit that um, the soldiers and officers in, in the different bases, there's nine bases for each okay. big Palestinian city. And we coordinate everything from uh, infrastructure and um, humanitarian needs. And my job was to work with the international organizations on 
um, projects like hospitals and roads, rehabilitation or rebuilding of roads. And actually during my service, I remember that the American army would have sent soldiers to, um, to, uh, to my base to learn how we are doing, how we are working with the civilian population. And then they actually copied us and started their own uh, uh, unit, which is great. It's really important, okay. but it's, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's very, um, it was an amazing opportunity to be, to work with, you know, I'm the son of refugees too. So to work with Palestinian refugees and work with um, on civil aspect, that was really meaningful for me. Interesting. So you're, you're in the thick of it, so to speak. So, yeah. you know, when you hear things on, or when you read things or see things, whatever, on social media, um, you have a very unique perspective that people like me on the outside looking in wouldn't have. You know, the closest I ever came to to even anything remotely like that. And it's so not even close <laughs> is when I tell people I've been to Hebron and they just kind of look at me like, why? <laughs> Actually, that's what, that's what Israelis say to me. Why? <laughs> and it's followed by, what is wrong with you? <laughs> but that's the closest I ever, you know, wandering around in Hebron and the Kasbah and stuff. So that, and that's, like I said, that's still nothing compared to being in the thick of it. So what sort of things do you hear that people say that you know is the exact opposite of what happens on the ground? Can you think of anything? Um, well, a lot of things. I actually, I served in Hebron for, uh, for like, 18 months and um i always heard on how the idf um is you know targeting civilians and i can tell you the idf is not targeting civilians there are civilians that are being hurt in this conflict and we can't ignore it and my work was often to be in touch with those uh, with the red cross and the un and all those organizations that whenever they send a complaint uh, they you know they would forward it to me and i would have to deal with it with the units and it's really an, a unique place to be in when you work for the humanitarian unit because really everyone hates you like I was gonna uh, ask you that actually <laughs> on both sides or yeah on, on wow. every side you know you we work with the settle the settlement community there that mm -hmm. um all of them really disliked that I was this Israeli officer that was helping the Palestinians the Palestinians although I helped them and a lot of them when they needed me they called me but um, but otherwise, they, they didn't want me to be there from the, to begin with. They didn't want to ask me for, for help. International organizations also didn't think that I should have been there. And even the combat soldiers in the Israeli army that I was, mm -hmm. you know, that I was working with didn't like the fact that I was, they called me a snitch for going wow. around telling their commanders about, you know, about the Geneva Convention and running up to them with rules of engagement and what they can and cannot do. Uh, and they just wanted to do security. That's what their job was to do. But my job was to make sure that they are um, upholding human rights and, and are not mm -hmm. violating international law. So um, so it was a very uh, unique place to be in. And, and it's just, it's what people think is that Israel is like covering up or like hiding things. But the West Bank has the highest amount of journalists per capita anywhere. There's so many journalists, international journalists, so many international organizations. Um, the you know the we saw in the war in Gaza when Israel had to um, um, take down this building that was a, a media building they right. gave them a notice of like 24 hours like other places they wouldn't give them notice if they wanted to take down a building and take down the journalists they would do it but they gave them a notice everyone were evacuated no one was killed there's a there's this there's this joke that um, 
you know, there's a guy that is walking down the street in the middle of the night and he's seeing another person trying to look for something on the ground. And he says, what are you doing? And he said, well, I lost my key. I'm trying to find it, my key to get back home. And the other guy is saying, okay, I'll help you. Tell me where you lost it. And he said, well, I actually lost it over there, but the light here is so so much better that I'm looking here. <laughs> and that's basically, that's basically Israel. Like, because the light is so good, like people are constantly looking at it instead of looking mm -hmm. in places that are much far more darker than, exactly. than, than Israel. Exactly. So it's I not to say agree. that it's perfect, but yeah. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Um, and even what you said, I remember wandering around Hevron and you definitely did not feel alone. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. there was a lot of journalists. In fact, some were yelling at me. And I, okay. and I probably did somewhat of a rude gesture back. In fact, I know I did. Am <laughs> I going to fake it? I did because I felt harassed. But, you know, but <laughs> yeah, but really and truly, all eyes, all eyes on Israel, all mm -hmm. eyes on Israel, very few eyes on other places, including the places where some of our biggest detractors come from. Mm -hmm. you know or some of our not so big detractors like i love it when you know my fellow canadians or americans have things to say about israel because you know they've never been there for starters but they still have loads to say about israel and i think to myself clean your own backyard first pay attention mm -hmm. to your own backyard first united states pay attention definitely clean your own house because as it stands today and i'll say this openly I have no interest in going there because I am a black person. Um, I have no interest in going there because I don't feel particularly safe in Canada, a little more safe, but look at how we treat our indigenous people. We treat them like less than. So we need to clean our own house before we even criticize a house. It's a lot cleaner than ours, actually, a lot cleaner. So I hear you. I hear you. This is such an important point, what you said that, um, I mean, the, I was I had this debate with um, Ariel Gold. She's this uh, the founder of Code Pink and anti-Israel organization. And she I know who she is. Oh, okay, you know who she is. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. But mm -hmm. She told me something like, "You need to go back to where you came from." Mm. And I said, "Girl, you live on a stolen land. You literally live in Ithaca, which is a burial site for Native Americans." And you're telling me to go back to where I came from? Where did you come from? And she said that she's Jewish and her family came to Israel, to, came to the U.S. from Spain. They originated from Spain because she's Sephardi. And I said, mm -hmm. but they, they didn't originate from Spain. They, <laughs> say they were expelled from Spain. Exactly. Where did they come from originally? Like, where, where did they start as people? Because indigeneity is not about where your grandparents come from or your great-grandparents it's where you started as a people where which the land roots, you belong the to absolute yeah. roots of the people like mm -hmm. exactly that's like trying to change the conversation to say that native americans don't deserve the autonomy in their land um and i think that's why it's so ridiculous that people in america are the ones that are telling people in israel that they need to leave their land or people in Canada telling Israelis that they are committing genocide against indigenous people. The Jews in Judea are doing it or saying that, you know, or British people talking to us about colonialism and imperialism. But they're the biggest ones. Yeah. Like, come on, give me a break. I, it's, in, the hypocrisy is real. Mm -hmm, absolutely. The, the, and, and including among our, our very own Jewish people, the hypocrisy right. is real, which is often why I said to you before we started, 
I used to be on Twitter like crazy. In fact, it was, I didn't confess this to you, but I was actually a bit obsessive <laughs> on Twitter. Like I was the 3 a.m. tweeter. But anyways, but in all seriousness, I got fed up because I was like, if you can't see the facts in front of you that in this case are pretty black and white, and you're still going to carry on this absolutely false narrative, I can't, I can't fix you. And nor do I want to even attempt to even bother because it's just wearing me out mm -hmm. as you sit on land stolen that actually was stolen factually. It's very frustrating. So I yeah. hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Let's talk about Mr. Rahim. Let's talk mm -hmm. about Mizrahim and Israel. And I'll preface it by saying it is something that people, I am saddened actually how little, we call ourselves the people of the book, right? That's what we call ourselves, people of the book. But I'm so saddened about how little our own people know about the history of Mizrahim or Sephardim in the Middle East in Israel and the long unbroken history in the land. And the narrative has been spun as, you know, the state of Israel was formed in 19 whatever and not re-established. The narrative of Israel is there because of escaping from the Holocaust in Europe and almost, almost wiping out the unbroken presence of those of us who never left the area, never left and held it down so that there was some place to come back to, right? So you share your thoughts. You've done a lot of research behind this. It is your, it's your story. Yeah, um, well, first of all, the, the name of uh, the author that I mentioned earlier, her name is Shana McKinney Bolden. And of she's, course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's incredible. And she, she, she coined the term Jews of color. That's and she actually right. said, I found the quote that this collection of writing, she wrote, she wrote um, the first time that anyone, I mean, that we, at least that I know of, ever wrote about it was in the, in Bridge, a journal for Jewish feminists and our friends. Uh, that was that published an issue that was titled uh, "Writing and Art by and for Jewish Women of Color," and okay. she said that this collection of writing and um, and artwork by Jewish women of color, Jewish women of African, Asian, Latin, and Native American heritage um, offers readers a chance to think about racism within the Jewish community, and that was really she she said um, how we name ourselves and our experience our experiences is a, the place to begin. And she invited this group of, of um, you know, diverse group of women, Jewish women, um, okay. to, to speak about uh, being Jewish women of color, which is, wow. I think it's beautiful way That's powerful. To, so my yeah. apologies to Shana for not blanking out on her name because <laughs> I shouldn't have. And maybe I need to bring her on and to apologize in person. But nonetheless, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for jogging it for me. No, That's no, incredible. it's my... It's my, it's my, I, I blank on that as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an incredible uh, idea. And I think to include Mizrahim within that is so important because Mizrahi Jews, um, as you said, have been in the Middle East for, the, perhaps it is the, the, the strongest um, um, uh, evidence of 
Jewish connection to the Middle East. Um, my family has lived in Iraq before it was even Iraq. We, we look at the Middle East today and we forget that all those countries weren't there for mm -hmm. a long time. It's all new creation and new borders that have been drawn um, because of colonialism, because of imperialism from the West, but also uh, Arab colonialism. And we that's another thing that we forget that- We don't talk about that, mm, but we need to, but continue. We absolutely need to mm -hmm. because um, being imperialist doesn't only come in white, it comes in different colors as well. And um, Arab imperialism has been dominating the Middle East for the longest, longest time. The reason that my family, the Jews of Iraq and Jews in Tunisia and Jews in other places were called Dini, which means protected minority, was because they, were, they lived under Arab rule and they weren't Muslim. If they wanted to become Muslim, Arabs, they had to convert to Islam but they were constantly reminded that they are not Muslim and that they are not Arabs. They had to pay tax to be Jewish. They couldn't ride a horse that was higher. They couldn't ride a horse at all. They couldn't be higher than a Muslim person. Um, they couldn't even have the same position as Muslims. I mean, my, my great grandfather was working in the court in Iraq and he had the education of a lawyer, but he couldn't be a lawyer because you weren't allowed to be a lawyer as a, as a Jewish person. It was Islamic law, so it only was Islamic. Um, um, the only Muslim lawyers were allowed to practice law. Um, and he later on was uh, executed um, for for being Jewish by um, by the Iraqi government. Um, and all of this, people just try, people, especially in the West, have a problem of realizing that. Um, imperialism is that Arab imperialism is the what what really um, um, was the, the the dominant force that oppressed minorities and still oppressed minorities in the Middle East. And the best test to recognize an empire is by language. The reason that I speak English is because English is a is an imperial language. And the same reason that French is spoken in so many places and mm -hmm. and Spanish is spoken in so many places and Arabic is spoken in so many places. If there is several countries that speak a language, you understand that it's uh, that the reason for it is because of imperialism, because that's how empires extend their force and their control, and they re-educate or force the, the local community to adhere to their culture and then erase in their own, the, the indigenous community's culture. Um, Israel is the only place that that is speaking, that people speak Hebrew at. I mean, of course, there's we have minority communities of Jews around the world that speak Hebrew, but not the same way. The only right. country that its official language is Hebrew is is in Israel. Uh, Israel is an is a um, is a you know is a nation state, while the Arab world is an an empire. Mm -hmm. And um, Mizrahi Jews have lived in this region for thousands of years. Um, we know that in history, the it used to be that uh, um, the Jews of the Middle East were the ones that the whole world looked to. And people like uh, Maimonides, the Rambam, was writing all the all the Jewish texts and all the halacha that we're following today, right. um, all the practice that we're following. He wrote it in Iraq, in Babylon. Even Iraqi Jews are identifying today as Babylonian Jews rather than Iraqi Jews. Of course, they, some of them go by Iraqi Jews, but, but they remember that they were there before it was Iraq, when it was Babylon. Nice. Um, and they remember that on the rivers of Babylon, we, we sat and cried. That refers to Iraqi Jews when they were sitting and crying and remembering Zion and wanting to go back uh, to their homeland. So um, that's, you know, that's the story of my family, but it's also the story of so many Jews that have lived in this region and have this strong connection to the land. And this is where we started. This is where they maintain their identity. Um, but although they have been in closer proximity to the land of Israel, they weren't 
in the land of Israel. And they, mm-hmm. for them, they were still in the diaspora and they still longed to return um, uh, to their homeland. And um, what's interesting is that while Jews in Europe in recent time, right before the Holocaust, um, you know, they received emancipation in, in Europe. They were told that they are, that they are equal citizens, that um, you, you read texts of Jews saying that before the Holocaust saying, I'm German before I'm Jewish, yes. thinking that they would be protected. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, if they just give up their Jewish identity, they would be in- accepted. Of course, we know um, how terrible the, you know, the, the story ended. ended. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, but meanwhile, while that was the experience of European Jews, of Jews from Europe, I mean, um, Jews in the Middle East and North Africa were always oppressed as a collective. And I think that's the biggest difference that we have between the experience of Mizrahi Jews and Jews from, um, from Europe, Jews that lived in Europe. I'm being very careful with the semantics because I do understand some people are a bit sensitive to this, yes. uh, to, the, to the wording. Um, but, you know, Mizrahi Jews, Jews in the Middle East and North Africa, and also actually Jews in, in, in Ethiopia as well, um, they were also always and Jews in, in other countries in other countries in, in in Africa because there are many Jewish communities in Africa. Although we we don't hear a lot about them, but right. um, Beta Israel is probably one that because they're now in Israel, we hear so much about them. But I think yes. you know it's really important that we bring back or allow Jews from Rwanda and Jews from anywhere Absolutely. else in Africa. The to, Ibu Jews, the Lemba Jews, yes. yeah, 100%. Uh, all of them are are mm-hmm. should be brought back and or allowed go back if they want to mm-hmm. to Israel it's uh it's an issue that I really care about and I work behind the scene with politicians and I've been pushing for it for years oh, and wow. I and I know that it's just a process yeah but I mm-hmm. but it's um it's something that we have to to fix but but those communities you know all of them always were oppressed as a community they always knew that they were together and and I think that this is why many Mizrahi Jews in Israel today are more nationalistic uh in a way that they are um you know, very uh, right-wing and they vote for the Likud party. And while they are very progressive on many other, and many issues, like they would accept, my family now accepts me as a gay person. Um, they actually fight for gay rights, which I never imagined that my mom would be a person to do that. But, you know, <laughs> That's when cool. it's, what, yeah, when someone in your family is like that for them, for Mizrahi, yeah. it doesn't matter. I have a friend that she's a, a trans woman and her parents are Yemenite Jews that are ultra-Orthodox and they accept her and they say, we don't care about what the world thinks. This is our daughter. And that's we love our her. daughter. And, and that's really, I think, this is very um, Middle Eastern, African type of culture that it's, that it's very, the family comes above everything. And there's no, there's nothing like cutting off the family members. And if, and I can, you can be so upset about your uncle or your aunt, but they're still. and, and Still their family. This, absolutely. And and maybe it's also this this uniqueness that I'm I'm hearing a lot of people saying I'm coming to Israel and I there's this like different experience and there's flavors and there's smells and there's this feeling of a family and I think that the biggest difference about Israel like what why Israel is like that is because of Israeli Jews it's because sixty percent of Israeli Jews today are Jews that are descendants the first second and third generation of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa because we were oppressed as a community as a family we came to Israel as family as a community. And I feel like in Europe, um, they were oppressed individually and mm-hmm. the horrific catastrophe in the Holocaust was also part of why um, individuals were, um, you know, your, women could, Jewish women could have wake up without their kids or having their kids shot in, in front of their eyes. And there was a horrific violence that happened there 
But that also got them to think twice about what family means and how emotionally you are connected to a family. And I'm sure it does some generation. I'm not a I'm not an uh, anthropologist, but I but I'm sure that it does something with generational trauma that passes yeah. on. I believe um, it does. Yeah. So so yeah. So that's that's like I think is a big difference. This is what being Mizrahi means to me. It's this oh, this. Wow. You, this being part of a family and being part of, of togetherness that I think all Jews should be like that, by the way. And, yeah. and many are. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's also this, um, I think when I think of Israel and I say to people, first of all, it's important to hear because there is this narrative around Israel and what the dominant cultural group is. And so I think it's important for people to hear that the majority, because I've always felt that way, but I always, I always kind of felt like I was talking to myself, you know, but I always said more Jews are not Ashkenazi in Israel. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, I said, it may feel that it's not the case. And I said, often because your contact with Israel may be specific to, because I won't deny this, may be specific to going to a particular Mizrad and you see who's behind the desk. So you assume that represents all of Israel. And I said, that's not the case. And I also said, there should be, this might be controversial, maybe may not be. And I've always said, we should flip the government a bit and we should have more Mizrahim there. Because if anybody knows what it's like to live in the Middle East, deal with the Middle East, know the Middle East, everything, it is Mizrahim, right? And I said, I bet you things would be a little different, be a little different. Because I think we, we Israel, has imported concepts from the diaspora that you can't just apply to a country that's inherently Middle Eastern in its thinking and its philosophy. And I think that's where we're having our problems. Absolutely. You are so spot on. Uh, the, the part that it's, we are not immune to phenomena that we have lived in in the diaspora. You know, we adopt and we take a lot of things from the diaspora. My The reason that I cook Kube and that I speak Arabic and that all of this comes from my family because this is what they they they've done in the diaspora, um, and the same the same way that you are influenced by culture, you're also influenced by the negative things in society, and we have to realize that. And you, when you lived in Europe, and Europe is where racism was spread through the world, thinking that um, people with with brighter skin color are preferable than people that with a darker skin color that's that's european concept and Mm -hmm. jews were not immune to that and we have been affected by it Mm -hmm. while there's nowhere in jewish text and i've looked into it there's nowhere in jewish text ever that it's there's something that says that your skin color says how better you are or how worse you are there's no reference and there's no reason to think that jews have ever been all the all the Jewish leader and all the Jewish philosopher and all the Jewish people that we've, you know, the, the stories, the, the Bible stories, that any of them was had a, a white skin. There's no reason to believe that. Um, but but we were definitely affected by the communities that we lived in. And we need to recognize that Jews in Europe were actually, you know, were affected by those ideas that they lived around. And you said it's, you know, that I just, I have those numbers here. I was just looking for it for my book that, um, in the last 20 years, um, there was uh, 20% Mizrahi ministers and 80% Ashkenazi ministers in the Israeli government. 
So, and and that's a and that's you know and that's a country of as I said, there's a 60% of Israeli Jews are Mizrahim. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a majority of Jews from the Middle East and North Africa, and yet there only 20% of them exactly. are in the Knesset. And it's the same with, with, you know, with women in the Israeli government. We have to mm-hmm. work on that because in the, last, um, in the last 20 years, there's only been 11% of women in the Israeli government so. compared to 89% um, ministers in, in the Israeli government. So right. that's these are things that we have to work on but absolutely it has to be representative and i mean it's a challenge for almost every country but we can always do better (laughs) you know and we should do better and the government should be a representation of the people Mm -hmm. and those numbers keeps you that the impression that as if there's um white ashkenazi men that prevent from um mizrahim and women to be more represented so uh, there is there is every reason to believe that this is um this is a problem that we have to address and we need to also address the fact that in academia in Israel, the Mizrahim are underrepresented. There's more representation in in uh, Israeli academia to scholars uh, from Arab uh, Arab Israelis um, than there is of Mizrahi Israelis. Okay. So you know, the minority, the twenty percent of Israeli Arabs um, have more representation in in academia than there is of for for Mizrahi Jews. There's never been a president of any university in Israel. Uh, that is Mizrahi. There was one that was half Iraqi, I think, just recently that was mm-hmm. nominated. But other than him, never um, Mizrahim represented. Uh, the same with, you know, when, when we're looking at wealth and, and where um, where Mizrahim are standing in, in terms of the salaries, uh, there's still a 30% wage gap between second and third generation Mizrahi Jews in Israel than there is to Ashkenazim. So all these things and people always tell me, oh, you know, statistics, you can take it wherever you want. I don't think so. No. Not when you're talking about a majority of the population that is still feeling underrepresented. That exactly. There wasn't a Mizrahi prime minister ever there. Um, we're still, you know, we're, we're feeling it. You can't tell us that we are, you can, people shouldn't be even gaslight us to thinking that we're crazy because we're not. No, no, you're spot on. And it's funny because I do this program uh, with Federation called Cafe Afug, where um, I, uh, do you know what Cafe Afug? It sounds familiar. Oh, it's super cool. I've been doing it since it started. So initially, um, I did it with I, I was in it with high school students from Sturot and Eilat. And what it is is so that they can work on their English. So um, I do I spend my time just talking to them on topics of Jewish identity and so on. But they get to work on their English because it's all in English. And thank God because my Hebrew is horrible. But. <laughs> So now it's um, university students this time round, and I believe they're out of Sapir College. Um, so fantastic. But the last group I have, I shouldn't say but, and the last group that I had was there were two young ladies. One, her background is Karite, which is an interesting minority within Israel. And the other young lady, oh, from Yemen. But it led us to speak about, you know, who are the minorities, who are the perceived minorities, right? Because that is different because mm-hmm. you just said it, you know, um, Mizrahim are the perceived minority, but are actually not the minority, right? right. And so we talked about that and we talked about the, the, the feeling that, you know, one of them said, I have this last name. And, you know, in Israel, it feels like if my last name was Adler, it'd be better than what my last name is. And it was actually really sad to hear. It kind of hurt your heart. 
So those people who say statistics, blah, 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 I'm sorry, anecdotally on the ground, the statistics, uh, uh, anecdotally on the ground, what you're saying bears out. It's truth. It's Emmett. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the um, a former minister, Miri um, Regev, um, she's a former minister for, for Likud. And I, I really disagree with a lot of her politics and different issues. And, and that's okay. But mm-hmm. she's a Mizrahi woman. And she gave an interview recently that shocked the country just a few weeks ago. Now she's in the opposition. Um, and she said that we need to stop voting for, um, quote unquote, leaders with white DNA, and we need to vote for Mizrahi Jews um, to lead, and maybe Mizrahi women should lead. And she actually, um, she was born uh, by the name uh, um, uh, Siboni, and she changed it to uh, last name Regev, because Regev is more Ashkenazi. Um, And she was challenging that, and she said that this is the biggest regret she has Mm -hmm. in her life to that she had to adhere. And she said, and, and I think I really like the, the, the part where she says, you need to ask yourself, not why I changed, but I mean, not, not that not, I changed it. Right. But, but why I changed it. Exactly. exactly. And it's true. Like if the, if the, the idea that she even need to be challenged for changing her name, um, she needed to do it. And she also said, which was another part that I love that she, 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 she recall how she, saw that when Obama was elected, she was sitting in front of the TV and crying for a whole hour because she felt so connected to the experience of um, many African Americans, not because um, not because she, she said, we, it's not because we had slavery in Israel, of course not, mm-hmm. but it's this, there's a lot of similarities in how we're feeling in Israel to, um, to this feeling of, uh, um, of many in the, in the African American community and, and the racism that they're still experiencing mm-hmm. in, in society. Which is something Israel, this is not, sadly, that feeling is not new to Israel, or else there wouldn't have been the Black Panthers of Israel. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? And Absolutely. we still have a long way to go, even in Israel, the country I love, and hopefully no one can hear me. I'll just say as much as Canada. Okay. <laughs> I love Israel. I, it's like, I feel mm-hmm. whenever I'm there, it feels like home. Um, Wow. Well, thank you. I would love to continue this conversation with you at some point in the future, if you're amenable to that, because there are so many other things I would love for you to speak about in your experience. And and you said you're doing a book. It's almost done. Mm -hmm. So yeah, almost done. Maybe around the time. Okay, no, I want before that, but <laughs> but you know we can we can talk about what's in your book because um, I'm hoping I get an <coughs> advanced free <coughs> copy <laughs> signed and delivered for free. Yes, I'll tell you what you're, you're you said you're in England now, but when you're in Israel, I'll come to Israel to visit. Not that I have anything against England. I've been to England. My relatives <laughs> in England, but you know my heart's in Israel. So <laughs> mine is too. Mine is too. I'm here just because my partner is English, but we're going to move back yes. one day. So yeah, I would love to come back to um, to speak with you soon and to yeah. following that that up. And what you said, you know, I love Israel and I, I feel that absolutely. In every, if I didn't love Israel, I wouldn't do this work every day, and I wouldn't be. You know, even when I'm criticizing Israel, if I if I didn't love Israel, I wouldn't care. I would say whatever. Like they can, I want Israel to be. Yeah, exactly. We we spoke about that. That's the value that leads me, and I think leads you as well. 
Absolutely. You know, I say to people when <laughs> the same the same conversation about criticizing. So if I didn't care, it wouldn't even be a thought. It wouldn't even it wouldn't even come out of my mouth. It's mm-hmm. because I care. It's because yeah. I care. And, you know, and that's what you do with family. Sometimes you see family acting up, you check them, (laughs) you check them because you love them and that's it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was, this, this is a highlight for me. So thank you. And one day we shall meet, continue the conversation as a podcast and just continue the conversation period. Can't wait to meet you one day. Thank you for that. Absolutely. And you take care. I know you're a very busy person, (laughs) 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 but thank you for joining. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for listening to Rivkush. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Music by Westside Gravy, and I am Rivka Campbell. Check out the CJN's new website. Go to thecjn.ca/rivkush. Listen and subscribe. Thank you for listening. It's time we talk about more than just the tragedy, the hardship we've overcome, and the savagery. It's time we focus on what's woven in the tapestry, the roots that connect us to our truth and the canopy. Of every single branch of our tradition The story that's been told and those yet to be written A tale of persistence and the count of achievement All across the globe, every single place that them leaves went Scattered in the wind, never scattered too thin To remember where we come from and the gold that's within Zahav Yerushalayim, Asur Lishkoach Hakdushat Ha'aret, Shenoten Lanu Koach Scattered in the wind, never scattered too thin To remember where we come from and the gold that's within